Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Are you ready to write? Do you want to learn what it takes to create a writing career? Then tune in and take notes, because on Simply Write talk about the writer's craft and the qualities and quirks of living a writer's life. Let's go. Hello and welcome to Simply Write with Polly. This is the podcast where we talk about the writing craft and crafting a writer's life. And while I love writing and you know, I, I talk about it every week. I write about it. I do it. But I also love eating and I watch all those cooking shows. I read the articles about the restaurants in my area, about the chefs making special plates in my area. And I'm always inspired about by those who write those pieces because they're so evocative. If you read a good piece of food writing, it should make you want to get up and go and try that recipe and try that food. And I'm not even like a chef. But a good one gets me back in the kitchen or headed out to the restaurant. So you can imagine I'm excited today to talk with one of the food writers, one of the best you can do that, a James Beard award-winning food writer, Danielle Santoni. And Danielle is here today to teach us about the food writing market and how we can learn more about it too. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Uh, I'm happy to have you. Like I said, I, I love to eat. And I love to read about food. So here we go. I have a lot to learn about this. Danielle Santoni is a James Beard award-winning food writer, editor, recipe developer, and cookbook author based in Portland, Oregon. She served as a food editor of several newspapers and magazines, including the Oakland Tribune and the Oregonian, and her articles and recipes have been featured in regional and national publications, including Eating Well, Better Homes and Gardens, Fine Cooking, Bon Appetit, and others. Danielle aims to create recipes that go big on flavor, but light on effort. I am all about the light on effort. Danielle, and she is the author of several books, including Just a Spritz, and her newest, which she co-authored with Carrie Newberry, which is called Oregon Wine and Food. Danielle, we have a lot to get into today, but we start every show with the dailies. What does a day in the life of a food writer like you look like? You know, I have figured out about myself that I write better in the last part of the day, like in the afternoon. So when I was freelancing, just solely freelancing, I would spend the first part of the day researching, pitching, emailing, all of that kind of business. And then I would really start to get down to writing in the afternoon. Afternoon and evening is for some reason when my brain clicks in and I I really start to feel like I'm in the zone. 
So I stopped fighting it. I stopped trying to do this, like get up every morning and, and write, you know, for an hour. That's just was not working for me. So I just do business during the day, writing in the evening or afternoon. And even now um, <clears throat> I have a day job in marketing. And so all my freelance stuff happens after work, but it actually works out really well for me. So I, I have like two two shifts. I go to, I go to work, I do that job. I come home, you know, check in with my family or make dinner. And then I sit down and I start my, my freelance writing and it actually works out really well. I think you have to listen to yourself and not fight, you know, your, your general urges. Yeah. We talk a lot about that on the show. I think it's really important uh, to have a writing process but I don't think it matters what it is. I think what matters most is that you know what yours is. So when you do get the moment to write, because many of us are juggling all kinds of things, families and other jobs and other writing jobs. And so when you sit down to write, that time needs to feel good and be productive time so that you can get the other work out. It sounds like you've honed into that for yourself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are you tired when you come in after a day at the other job or does it use different muscles? You know, it kind of uses different muscles. And for some reason, maybe it's because it's two very different fields. One is higher education and then there's food. So even if I'm tired coming home, there's sort of like a re-energizing that happens um, when I shift gears and get into the food. And usually there's a break, you know, I cook dinner or whatever, but then I just settle in and I get into that food mode again. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does make for longer days, <laughs> but it's not tiring in the way that some other jobs could be because I think it is energizing. In fact, sometimes if I work too late, then it's hard to go to sleep oh, because I, my brain is on, you know? <laughs> I have that issue too. And I'm like you, I, I used to really, because I have a child who's still living at home. And, and when she was young, I would write in the morning because sometimes that was the only time I got. And now that she's older and I can do my administrative stuff in the morning when I'm kind of waking up, my, like you said, the pictures yeah. and the email, then by the afternoon, I'm like, oh, okay, this feels better. This feels more yeah. in sync with me. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like I need to clear the decks in order to write. And so it's that kind of like getting the little stuff out of the way so you could settle in you have that brain space. It's almost like freedom to think or something. And I have to get those, you know, mundane tasks out of the way first. Yeah, freedom to think. I like that. All right, those are the daily. All right, teach me everything I need to know about food writing, Danielle. I <laughs> enjoy it. How did you break in and, and where did this evolution come from for you? Where did it start? Um, it's funny because I kind of fell into it when I was younger. Um, I was never like the kid who writes fantasy stories in her spare time. I did dabble in poetry as a young kid, but I wasn't really a writer as a kid. And even in high school, what I loved to do was read. That was my main thing. And I thought, well, what am I going to do for a career? All I want to do is read books. And I thought, oh, I'll be an editor. And that was my, my plan. And so everything I did from that point on was editing related. So I worked on the yearbook. I worked on, you know, magazines, the school magazines in college. I worked in a literary magazine. Um, all my internships were related to editing and I worked at different publishing companies. And then um, I realized, but at the same time, when I was in high school, I got really into cooking and this is in the, the early nineties. Um, 
So I was, I joined a cookbook club. I was cooking all the time. I made really ambitious things. I made wedding cakes for people's anniversaries. I catered my mom's work, you know, meetings. Um, and so I had these two passions, like reading and cooking. I went off to college. I thought about going to um, cooking school. And then I realized that it was just too physical. It was It's really a very physical job. And I knew that I would not love that. So I went off to college and majored in English and um, with the goal of being an editor. And when I had an internship in New York um, with an editor, big publisher, I loved it, but I realized I couldn't afford to have that job. It doesn't pay enough. And I, to people I talked to said they had trust funds. And mm. so I just thought, you know, I don't think I could live in New York on this salary and scrape by. And it's kind of a dog eat dog world, the publishing world. There's a lot of competition. So I just went home and tried to figure out what I was going to do next. That was somehow related to writing. And I ended up getting a job at my local newspaper um, and I wasn't planning to stay there, but I was working as a copy editor for the sports section, which is odd, but I, <laughs> and I don't know a lot about sports, but I learned it. Um, and the, they needed a food editor. They had an opening and I had no experience. I just cooked a lot. I knew a lot about cooking, but I knew nothing about running a section of my own at the newspaper. I didn't have a journalism degree. Um, but I talked my way into that job. Um, and this is something I tell people a lot, take, don't be afraid to take a risk because if you believe you can do that job, then just do everything you can to prove to that person that you can. So what I did was I baked a bunch of really beautiful fruit tarts and I wrote a story about fruit tarts and I brought it into the, the editor who was hiring and uh, he was very surprised and excited, but then, you know, he had a meeting with me cause he never would have. And, um, he, at the end of this, you know, interview, he's like, well, you know, we can't hire you because you don't have any experience, but thanks anyways. And maybe you could write for this section. And I was really kind of miffed because I thought he wasn't listening to me. And so I went up to my computer because I was in the same building and I wrote a memo. And this is something I learned at my other internships, like how to communicate with your higher ups. You got to put things in writing. And so I wrote this memo and I was like, this is what is wrong with the food section now. This is what I would do to improve it. This is why this is, you know, this whole um, plan. And I emailed it to him and he was impressed enough to hire me. And then luckily I had mentors on staff um, in the, the living section who taught me like, okay, this is how you run a section. This is how, you know, every newspaper story needs to have quotes from three different people. And, you know, they kind of really gave me journalism one-on-one -on -one, like on the job, which was fantastic. And they were, I, you know, the kindest people ever. And I've learned also from that experience to always give back when people are starting out, like help them out, open those doors, give them, share your knowledge, share whatever you can do not hold it back and don't gatekeep because that is not helping anyone. Um, so I'm very appreciative to the people who helped me out early on. So yeah, I ran that food section for about five years and, and that was it. I mean, I never looked back. That was, I loved it so much. It, it, it blended everything I loved cooking, learning about cooking, um, talking to people, writing, editing. And I never thought I'd be a writer. I just wanted to edit. I, I was very insecure about my writing skills, but you have with, with the newspaper food section, you've got to churn out a, a section a week. You cannot 
belabor anything. You've got these really intense deadlines. So I would learn to just write that piece and stop, you know, fretting over it. And um, that got me over a lot of my insecurities. So, um, so yeah, it was just something I kind of fell into, but I, I think I was well suited for it. I really loved it. And um, so, yeah, it just kind of morphed from there. I love, love, love that story. And I do have a journalism degree. And one thing that they taught us in college, well, one thing we were required to do was have a ton of credits in all these other areas because you have to live your life and experience things to have anything to write about. You can learn the craft of writing, yeah. but, but you need to follow your passions. And really what I love about that, Danielle, is is I really believe in letting people know what you can do and giving it a go. You can always leave or you yeah. can always move on or try something different, but you got to get out there. To be a writer means to to be scrappy if you want to do this and make any money at it over your life. Yeah. So yeah. that's a great story. What, um, and, and also I've like what you said about working at a newspaper because if you want a way to learn man you have to learn quick and get things out and you don't have yeah. time to fret when you get it wrong or yeah. don't know how to do it and yeah you just keep moving forward you really learn to get out of your own way um because you don't have time to be insecure about anything you just got to get it out there and I remember this editor that really was my mentor there and she said our mantra is bottom of the birdcage and that was because at the end of the day, everything you're producing is going to go in the bottom of someone's birdcage, you know, and it's like that puts it in perspective. It's like you're not, you know, saving lives. We're putting out information as best as we can, hopefully in a way that people enjoy reading. But you know what? Every sometimes there's not going to be the most stellar story. It's fine. Um, you just do your best and you keep moving. So that that actually helped. And it really gave me a um, good respect for deadlines as well. So absolutely, which is, is something that has served me in my whole life, really. Yes. Um, yes. You got to get the work out. You have nothing as a writer if you're not finishing something. Yes, exactly. That's yeah. Interesting. Okay. What now? going from newspaper into the world of a, a beautiful book and and these other projects you've taken on i mean there is a lot you're you're selling this feeling it's not just the recipe right so how do you transition from uh the newspaper world into you know a, a book author and and creating spreads like that and and publications like that well luckily with books um you've got a whole team working with you that, you know, I'm not a visual person. I've learned that about myself. And um, luckily when you do a book, you've got a whole publishing company. They've got designers, they've got art directors, they hire photographers. And so they're kind of creating the look and feel. A lot of times as an author, you don't have any input on that. You, they have decided what they want it to look like based on market research or what, what else they have coming out that year. And you kind of have to go with it. Um, some publishers may be different and they might, you know, give, let you have input, but by and large, they are deciding you're, you're creating a product that you're basically selling to a publisher who will package it up for you. However, they see fit you're, it's almost like, um, you're a contractor in a way. So then they, they create the final product and 
um, sell it and you hopefully reap some, um, you know, profit from that. (laughs) But um, so what I, I, what I like about books is that they have such a longer shelf life. So after writing for newspapers for 10 years or so, you know, you write all these things, you're just constantly churning out all of these things and, and, and they just kind of get recycled, you know, or they, might live on the internet for a while, but they just, they're very kind of quickly consumed and forgotten. Hopefully people might clip your recipes, but a book lives on someone's shelf and they come back to it or they might look through it when they're hanging out, sipping a glass of wine or when they're getting ready for bed. People who love cookbooks love to read them like books. Um, And that is gratifying in a different way. It's, um, I've actually walked through um, my neighborhood and I saw someone's kitchen was all lit up and they had all these cookbooks in the window and I saw one of my books and awesome. I had never that was like the pinnacle moment for me as an author was to see my book that in someone's kitchen that I did not know you know it was some stranger um, and and it was it's very gratifying to, to work on a project that does have that kind of staying power that gets gifted to people um and so books are a labor of love they often don't if you pencil out like how long it takes to produce it and what you're getting paid usually it does not make sense usually you make very little to maybe nothing um some people make a ton you know usually the very famous people um but you do them anyways because it's so deeply gratifying um i love the idea of seeing your book on the shelf because i think food is so intimate. It really plays in to every dynamic of our life, even if it's bad, like then we'll have a memory like that. But cookbooks are something that, that are, are touched and they get flour on them and spice and oil and they get passed down still. It really does have a kind of staying power that other forms of writing no longer do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it feels so good. And I, and I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, you must follow my recipes to the letter. Like, I feel like, you know, do what you want with it, but it, hopefully it's an invitation to you to try this thing and put your own spin on it, you know, whatever you want to do to, to make it the thing that you love and you come back to, like, that makes me so happy. It becomes almost like a part of your life. And I feel like I have friends you know, friends don't even know, but somehow I'm connected to them because they're making my recipes. So it's a good feeling. That's awesome. I want to talk about food writing specifically, how you get into some of these recipes and and stories, because they're, like I said, they're very evocative. And, and I feel like I'm in the character, I'm the character in, in these foods, right? So I want to get into that. We're going to take a quick break on Simply Write with Polly, part of the Creators Network of Electrocast. When we come back with Danielle Santoni, we're going to talk about food writing and how we maybe can give it a go if that's something we're interested in, merging our passions of cooking and eating and writing. We'll be right back on Simply Write with Polly, part of the Creators Network of Electricast. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
And we are back with James Beard award-winning food writer, Danielle Santoni, right here on Simply Write with Polly. And Danielle, before we went to break, we were talking about that connection between food and family and that feeling we all get um, when we're making something special to share or something that's delicious. How do you create that on the page? You have a lot going on. I mean, the recipes are scientific to some degree, right? It's a chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you also inspire people to to feel and smell and and taste this recipe enough to get up in the kitchen and and give it a go how do you blend those things you know it really is like two different sides of your brain so actual recipe writing is almost like technical writing so it's very there's a formula there's actually books if if anyone wants to learn the, the one that i learned on is called recipes into type and it's the one that i think most people use to kind of wrap your head around like, what is the formula? How are we using this framework? And there's, you know, you play with it within that framework, but you know, the ingredients are all in order of use and you try to organize them from the largest quantity to the smallest. And, um, you know, with the method you're thinking through, like what do people need to know to make this thing? What size pan do they need? What's the heat, you know, level, that type of thing. But um, so once you have your, you put your technical writing hat on and you really go through this, you know, the, the recipe writing process, you put your other hat on the creative hat when you write the head note and the head note should be something that really incur- not just teach says, Oh, this is a delicious recipe. Make it like anyone could say that you want to really hone in on what makes that recipe special or a teaching moment that will help people um, make it better more successfully maybe it's you're explaining an ingredient or explaining a technique or maybe you're giving some history on where it came from um sometimes you can just tell a really good story that is entertaining and people are like oh i want to try that that's such a funny story or evocative story so you you're thinking about it almost like a salesperson but like um i look at it like i'm talking to a friend like what would i tell my friend to encourage them to make this recipe um, especially a friend who doesn't cook, you know, like how can I get my non-cooking friends to get excited about this and want to make it? And some, you know, at cookbooks, you can't often have a photo for every recipe. Photos are the most expensive part of any cookbook. Absolutely bar none from hiring the photographer to actually printing these, you know, the photos in the book. So most cookbooks will only photograph a portion of the recipes. So the ones that don't get photographed, you've really got to sell them because people can't picture it. They can't look at it and say, that looks delicious. I'll make it. So you're selling them on it in the head note. Um, so yeah, I feel like it's two different um, ways of thinking. A lot of times I'll write the recipes and go back and do the head notes. Um, I'll put like little notes in the recipe head note area on my Word doc, like talk about this or that or the other. And then when I'm feeling that creative and I'm ready and in the creative zone, I go and I write the head notes. Um, now, are these recipes that are already out there that you're tweaking? Are these recipes you're developing? Or have most personal- of the time, it depends. Like a lot, most of the time, if it's a cookbook that's just mine, like fried rice or just a spritz, they're my recipes and I develop them. Um, and I've definitely done like stories for better homes and gardens or eating well where I developed the recipes and then some are um books I've done with other people where it's chef's recipes and so I'm mm-hmm. editing those and I'll, and you still have to write a head note for those because you know they might tell you a little bit about the recipe but you've got to really put that 
writerly effort into it. And it also has a sound consistent across, you know, the board. So it feels like a complete body of work. Um, but when I'm developing recipes, that's a whole other different muscle that I'm using. Um, and I, when I first started developing recipes, I was also very insecure about that because it's like, you realize everything comes from somewhere, you know, there's really nothing new in the world. Um, everything's kind of derivative. And so it was like, how am I going to create a recipe mm -hmm. that no one else has ever made before? And it's like, well, don't worry about that. Just start cooking, use what you know, use the techniques, you know, the flavors, you know, and just start putting things together. Um, so that's what I do. Sometimes I'll look at, you know, 10 different recipes and see, okay, what are, what are the things that I think are working here or not working here? Mm -hmm. And what can I pull from different people's you know, beautiful creations to make my own. Like I want more acid or I want more heat in this, or I think there should be cheese and, you know, whatever it is. And so you start tinkering and creating your own version of something. Um, and my goal is to keep it simple because a lot of recipes get really complicated. Yes. There's a lot of steps and it can be really intimidating and alienating for people. And people, there's, there's time for weekend warrior cooking, but most of the time we want something that is simple that we can yeah. execute and it tastes good. So that's what I aim for. But I also, if, if I make it and it's fine, it's good. That's not good enough. Like if it's going to be printed, it needs to be excellent it needs to be something that I would absolutely make again if I'm not mm. going to make it again then it doesn't then it's not ready and I keep going and, I, and usually I have to make something at least three times before I think it's ready that's interesting so you're doing I write nonfiction personal development books and those books are sold through a proposal do you sell a proposal to publishers before you write the book so are, is this is this, uh, are these creations and this cooking going on all throughout while that proposal is happening or how does it work? It usually happens, usually it happens where you have an idea for a book and you write a proposal and the proposals are very intense. Um, I bet. You have to you know explain the book, explain the market, explain why you are the right person to write that book. Um, you have to go and you have to research all the other books that are like it and then talk about why your book would be different. Um, so you're really, I, what I tell people when they ask, how do you write a cookbook proposal? There's, there is a formula to it. Um, and you could find those online, but your goal is to sell the publisher's salespeople on your book because that's who will kill it. I've had proposals that editors loved. I thought I would sell them. I had one book in particular. I thought for sure the slam dunk had several editors interested and each one had to come back and say no because their sales oh. team said they didn't think they could sell it at the volume that they wanted. Um, so it's, you've got to really convince the salespeople that there's a market for it um, that the and that the publisher will make money because the publisher, at the end of the day, they have to be the ones making the money or they will not do your yeah. book. But yes, the proposal really helps. It really um, crystallizes things so the publisher knows what they're getting into, but it also helps you create sort of a roadmap for what you're going to be doing. And you can go back to it and say, oh yeah, I wanted to make sure that this was, you know, going to have these various sidebars or, um, you know, like my spritz book, um, the goal wasn't just to create really fun spritzes, but also to have non-alcoholic versions um, for everything I could possibly concoct. Um, and also in my proposal, I talked about keeping the um, 
the number of different spirits used to a minimum because so many cocktail books are written by bartenders have huge collections of spirits or they work at a place and they're, you know, using all that. And for, you know, the rest of us, we don't have room or money <laughs> for that kind of yeah. a collection. Yeah. So how do you create, you know, 50 or whatever recipes using maybe seven bottles of different spirits and, and make them all different and interesting. So that was, I kept going back to that when I was com coming up with my recipes, like, okay, you can't keep adding stuff from your collection because we're trying to keep it to a very tight curated collection of bottles that you need. So Yeah. I, I love that comment because as a home cook, you're right. I mean, I cannot afford to go out and buy three different kinds of fish sauce or yeah. spread, you know, bitters or whatever it is, but I still want to try new things. So I think what you're talking to, Danielle, is is the market. It seems like you really have your market, who the people are who are going to pick up this Oregon wine and food book and, and these other books and articles that you're writing. You know the people that these recipes are geared to when you're writing to them, it sounds like. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because when I think back on my career, like starting out at a newspaper where you're writing for a huge population of all different people, different cultures, different socioeconomic backgrounds, like you've got to write things that appeal to everyone at some level. That's your goal. And I feel like that's something that I've never quite um, abandoned. Like it's just become part of me. Like that's who I see my audience as. And so when I write things, whatever I'm doing, I'm speaking to those people. They're like me. It's like just regular people who love food or wine. So when we did Oregon Wine and Food, like we made a, a very concerted effort when we, we, they're all recipes that either came from the wineries or the winemaker families or from chefs that they knew or that we contacted that we had time and again, had to go back to people and say, no, no, we need something simpler because, you know, the the knee-jerk reaction is to give us you know, their most complicated, most impressive chef-y recipe. It's like, okay, but nobody wants to make that. And we want people to cook out of this book. We don't want people to just put it on their shelf or, or say, oh, no, I can't make that. You know, it's too complicated. We want people to engage with it and use it and make it part of their life. And so we pushed a few different times, like, no, give us something simpler, more accessible, but it still has to be interesting. Um, and, and so most of the book, most of the recipes, in my opinion, are not too chef -y. They're actually things most people would want to cook every day. I actually cook out of it quite a bit. I love that book. Um, that's so cool. yeah, that's, I think some people want to, you know, go and make something really complicated and really show off their skills, which is great. And there's definitely an audience for that, but I don't see that as my audience. That's it's not what right. motivates me. I, I think that's huge. I talk to writers often who are just breaking into different markets and and they're like, well, I want to write the book I want to write. And well, well, go do that. But that isn't necessarily the book that's going to get published because for it to be published, you have to have readers and they're not going to want to indulge every detail and every setting and every scene change. And yeah, it's so, interesting. Yeah. Any words of wisdom before we break off here for people that are interested in food writing and and curious about breaking into these markets? How would you suggest we get started? You know, the you've got to have clips. And so you've got to figure out how to get clips, um, because when you're pitching editors, wherever you're pitching, they're going to want to see an example of your writing. Um, 
So sometimes that means, unfortunately, maybe writing for free for someone's blog or for some site that doesn't pay very well or if at all, just to get a few clips, that's really helpful. Um, or maybe if you're in school, if you're going, you know, taking a class, you'll generate some writing that way. Um, <clears throat> I also think it's super important to always be learning. So it's very easy to think food writing is just restaurant reviews or just whatever. Um, but food is a huge, huge category, huge. I mean, there's politics, there's history, there's hmm. social commentary. There's so much that you can do in the realm of food in terms of writing. So pick the thing, pick a pathway that appeals to you the most and really dig into that and become the expert in that. And if you can be the expert in that, people will come to you because they'll say like, oh, I need someone who knows real, a lot about Jewish cooking. And then they're going to, they know they have a list in their mind of like, oh, I know these are the people that know a lot about that. I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to them. After a while, once you have, um, you get some relationships with editors, they'll start coming to you for work and you won't be pitching as much. Um, but I should say like, you know, when you, when you do pitch and someone accepts your story, um, and this is maybe the first time you wrote for them, you have to always be on time, always turn in the cleanest, most beautiful copy you can. Do your research, do your own fact checking. Mm, um, good point. Write to the word count they say, don't, don't go twice or three times and say, sorry, that's creating work for them. Um, editors are busier now than they ever have been. If you can be a go-to for someone, if they can trust that you're going to do the assignment right on time, clean copy without errors, that's to the word count and you're responsive, you will get so much work because they, they need people like that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I just think pick, pick a, a pathway or a few that you really are interested in really hone in and come up with some ideas that haven't really been and done before or find a new take on them and um and start pitching people um usually editors will say pitch me three times and then give up i've gone to a bunch of conferences where they talk about how to pitch um because most of the time they won't get back to you right away they're busy they're putting out fires all the time so you pitch you let it sit you follow up a few weeks later you follow up a few more times and if you haven't heard maybe about the third or fourth time over the course of a couple months, then then switch gears, do a different pitch because it could be they weren't interested. They are not even going to bother getting back to you, but the door is still kind of open. You just come up with another idea and they might like that one. You can't give up. You have to keep trying. It can be very demoralizing, but um, eventually <laughs> you'll get in there. <laughs> it is for sure. It can be, but right. The people who make it are the ones who don't give up and they, yeah, they keep getting better and they keep learning from the rejections and the people they like to work with and the type of markets they want to work in. I, I agree with you. That's good advice. And that brings us to what's in the desk. Danielle Santoni, is there anything you have to have around you when you write a, a pen, a paper, an artifact? You know, one thing that I do have to have, and it's it's been um, something that my one of my daughters introduced me to. Um, it sounds funny, but like writing is a very silent process, right? It's it could be isolating, and sometimes the silence is distracting. When I'm trying to think, and it's just so silent, and now I feel like I'm not getting anywhere, and I start getting anxious about it. 
that's not good. So I've learned to put on what we call cafe jazz, which is on YouTube. There's a bazillion of these. Um, they're just these little like, I don't know, it's almost like an animated gif of um, a cozy scene somewhere. And then there's just jazz playing in the background. And it's not jazz that's recognizable. There's no words. It's just easy listening. Um, and it is what's great is it fills that background noise. It doesn't distract me and I don't feel so alone. And so I've found that cafe jazz, no matter what time of day I'm writing, like I need to put my cafe jazz on. I'm going to go so check cheesy, it but out. It works really well. I love cheese, but I mean, I love cheese. I think cheese <laughs> should be in every recipe, but cafe jazz, I'm totally going to try that. That's Danielle, I've learned so much and I love the book, Oregon Wine and Food, that you wrote with Carrie Newberry. Where Thank can we you. follow you and find more of your books and, and see what you're up to next? Um, I do have Instagram, which I don't post as much on. Um, but yeah, it's um, D. Santoni on Instagram. Um, and, you know, I'm always around people. I've had people DM me and ask questions. I'm always happy to answer any questions about a recipe. I used to do that at the Oregonian. I was on the hotline. So if ever anyone has a question about cooking, find me on Instagram, send me a message. I will respond. That's awesome. Now I'm probably going to slide into your DMs all the time. Like, <laughs> what the heck do I do with this? That's awesome. And I will have Danielle's links and more information about her book on the Simply Write newsletter we produce. So join the free Simply Write community at simplywrite.substack.com and you can get links to all this and uh, tip sheets for other types of writing and all kinds of things we do over there. Become part of our community. Danielle, thanks for being here today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. It was so fun to talk to you. And writers, as you go through the week, remember the words of Ray Bradbury. He says, write what you love and love what you write. And sit down and simply write. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. 